Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Imagine being able to find all the keywords your competitors are ranking for that you're not. This is actually exactly what the content gap analysis in Ahrefs does, and it's pretty magical to be honest. Hands down one of my favorite features of any software product ever. The crazy part is you can do it completely for free with Ahrefs new webmaster tools. It's an amazing tool to come up with new ideas, see what you should be ranking for that you're not, and see what's working for your competitors. Check it out at ahrefs.com slash awt. You can find the link in the show notes and sign up to create a free account for your sites. On the show today is Jay Klaus. Jay is the host of Creative Elements, one of my personal favorite podcasts and co-host of Upside. He's also the founder of Freelancing School and Unreal Collective, which was actually acquired by SPI Media, where he now serves as the Community Experience Director. He's also created premium courses for LinkedIn Learning, as well as his own course called Podcasts Like the Pros. I wanted to bring him on because of the breadth of experience he's had between founding startups to communities to podcasts. Jay is a true creative. He's a builder. Jay is one of my go-to resources for both podcasting and communities. You'll hear about how he got creative elements to over 500,000 downloads in just over 50 episodes, the formula for starting and building successful communities, and the exact email template he uses to get big name guests on his podcasts. So Jay, I love to start out by asking, did you ever start, uh, did you ever think that you would start out and you'd be doing podcasting and community building for a living? No. Did I ever think I was going to be doing those things? Absolutely not. (laughs) I actually, I was just telling my fiance Mallory about this. The very first job that I remember thinking that's what I want to do for a living was creating video games for EA games. Interesting. Were you much of a gamer as a kid? Yeah, I was really into it. Well, I grew up in a household that did not have cable until I was like almost graduated high school. So we had four or five TV channels, (laughs) you know, like Mm, we had ABC and Fox and NBC and CBS. And there was a point in time when my dad, we had a farm, we had two fields on both sides of the house. He stopped renting the land to farmers so that he could join a government reforestation project and plant a ton of trees on both sides of the house. And that became a way for he and I to spend time together and also for him to plant trees faster. And he paid me 10 cents for every tree I planted. And that gave me enough money to buy a TV for my room and a GameCube. And I, the first game I bought was NCAA football 2003 that taught me how football worked and I absolutely (laughs) loved it. Madden 2003 is still my favorite Madden soundtrack. And I fell in love with those games. And then I was just like, this is what I want to do. I want to make these things. And then Hmm. I learned GeoCities, like building websites in GeoCities. I was fully on the train to be an engineer essentially. And then I joined the football team in middle school and stopped caring about nerd stuff. Hmm. And now I wish I would would have kept caring about nerd stuff. Right, right. Yeah, you, you would have. Well, you actually, I mean, I applaud you, first of all, for planting so many trees, because at 10 cents a pop, that's a lot, a lot of trees to get to a TV and a GameCube. So congrats on that. But uh, but how'd you get back into the nerd stuff and eventually make your way back into this whole world of, I guess, I mean, it's not this whole world, but of, you know, of tech, of of creating content and of sort of the business world. Yeah. Well, in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do because I think it's a ludicrous thing to suggest that 18 year olds know what they want to do when they enter college. 
So I was undecided at Ohio State. It was called Exploration, which I think is much better branding. But they basically told me like, hey, cool, you're undecided. We're not going to be able to make the decision for you. You need to try stuff. And they said, so what are you interested in, kid? And I said, well, I liked my AP English class in high school. And they said, writing, cool. Take an independent study with the student newspaper. And that put me on the path to journalism for a little bit, which I really, really enjoyed. Ohio State at the time was still on quarters instead of semesters. And I had a quarter where my weekends as a freshman started on uh, Wednesday night. I didn't have classes Thursday or Friday. I was able to schedule that as an honor mm. student. And good, good thing, bad thing. Good thing being I had the longest weekend of all time. Amazing. Like the best thing a college student could ever want. Bad thing being, I still lived in an honors dorm and nobody else had that. And even if they did, they would still be working through the weekends because that's what they were there for. I had the good fortune of the guys who shared a common wall with my dorm room had both started businesses in high school. And it blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. So I would take my Thursday or Friday start of the weekend. I would go in their room while they're doing homework. And I would be, I like would drink uh, gas station vodka and like diet Coke. And I'd be like, (laughs) I have an app idea. And I'd just be throwing app ideas at them. And I would do this like every weekend. And finally they were like, that one's actually pretty good. You should pitch that at this, this uh, pitch competition. And I was like, I don't know what that is. What, what is a pitch competition? (laughs) And they explained like, Hey, we just found this, this entrepreneurship organization here at Ohio state. And they have these pitch competitions and the winner's going to get $3,000 to build their thing. And I said, that sounds like an awful lot of beer money. I am in for that. And that just started me down this train of finding that startups were even a thing that was not in my world. Technology was not a thing that was back in my world. But I pitched. I bombed. I watched six other teams pitching like real products that they had built that were making money on the app store. And I was like, this is real? I don't even have to make a choice of like what stupid job I'm going to work for 30 years I can just make my own thing and that was the start of it and I feel really really lucky that that confluence of events happened when I was you know 19 years old to to put me on that path wow I mean that's quite a turn of events and serendipity that your roommates would be so entrepreneurial and that you even have sort of the the guts and and brevity to go over there and pitch ideas to them at least because being an introvert and knowing a lot of other introverts you know you sort of like want to just you know go in your cave and you don't talk to people and you sort of wait people to come to you and so what a turn of events there did you finish your years at ohio state i did i i graduated in four years with a marketing degree i eventually switched into business because i couldn't pass calculus and the only way around the traditional calculus was the business college, which fit with where I was going anyway. And so I first Mm. went into finance because I was following the money, realized I hated finance, hated numbers, and marketing was the only way I could get out in four years. Wow, that's fascinating. You're actually one of the first people who has actually graduated with a marketing degree. And I think the only other person I've ever talked to who was a sort of finance accounting major interest at first, like myself, and then switched over to marketing. Although I didn't have a choice, I actually, the college that I transferred to, I found out after I transferred that they didn't have a finance and accounting degree. Hmm. <laughs> so it was either marketing or global business, whatever that was. So it was marketing, but ended up marketing was much more in line with what I wanted to do anyways. The thing was, like, I spent two years in marketing and a year-ish in finance and then a year in journalism before that. 
And I took so much more from the year in intro journalism classes than I did in the three years of the business college that yeah. I still do today. Like in marketing, the research class was pretty good. Consumer behavior was pretty good. There were a lot of like contrived group projects that probably taught me something about working in groups and social dynamics. But as far as that, you know, like it's just, it'd be so difficult to keep a curriculum up to date with how quickly marketing moves today. I just don't even think it's possible at like a traditional higher ed level. Yeah. Oh yeah. Way, way, way better to just go read some blogs, listen to, to some podcasts, follow some people on Twitter. And actually I was surprised and uh, I mean, not entirely surprised because it seems sort of up your alley. But when I was doing some some research on your history, I found that you actually went to a couple, went through a couple of Seth Godin's programs, the Alt MBA and the marketing seminar. And I've actually never actually talked to someone who's gone through the marketing seminar. When did you do those? And what's the story behind those? So right out of college, I started a company in the ticketing space. We did, my, my view of entrepreneurship at this time was still pretty narrow. I thought it was high growth tech startups. So mm. I got like to be a co-founder out of college. It was awesome. And we went through an accelerator. We raised some funding. We sold that. Then I took a job working for a healthcare company that was venture backed here in Columbus because again, startups, venture, that's what I knew, but I didn't have an idea that I wanted to start myself. So I thought I'd go take a salary for a while. A year of that, I realized I hated having a boss. And so I went out on my own and I gave myself just like play time and space for a couple of months. It was like, I knew I was working towards building what became unreal, but I knew I had time. And that was when I wanted to take all MBA. So literally July of 2017, after I quit my job, I actually, I guess it was probably April of 2017 when I started all MBA, but I finished somewhere around July hmm. and I could dedicate a ton of time to it. All MBA is an incredibly intense program. It is wild. Like it's three hours a night, two nights a week, and then eight hours one day on the weekend. And that's just like the group times, not including the project times that you're doing on your own. So I literally right. workshopped Unreal Collective, my accelerator and mastermind program through all MBA was reflecting on this yesterday. I basically built Unreal to be a CBC within all MBA, also a CBC. Mm. You know, I'm going through Wes and Goggins company, which is now called Maven. I'm going through their like how to build a CBC, CBC, and Wes came from right. old MBA world. And I'm just like, oh, wow. I had actually kind of like built Unreal to be a CBC before we called it that. I just thought it was like, you know, it was a mastermind. These CBCs have been around in some form for a really long time before they were yeah. dubbed this. Anyway, so it was 2017 when I was fun employed at the point where people were asking, so what do you do? And I said, I don't. Uh, <laughs> it was really fun, but very intense. And the marketing seminar I took probably about a year later. Okay. What any like interesting takeaways from the marketing seminar? I know that obviously there was a lot from the Alt MBA and sort of the very intense program, but the marketing seminar is a little bit different, right? Is anything notable or sort of life changing from there? Unpopular opinion that I don't say very often. I think the mar the marketing seminar is way better than Alt MBA. Really? And it's like a sixth of the cost because hmm. here's the thing. The marketing seminar is intended to be instructive about marketing. It teaches you marketing. Old MBA helps you find your people. If your people are people who take old MBA, like the, the prompts themselves are pretty contrived. They're like there to put you through the exercise. You don't necessarily walk away with a finished product or whatever. And I wasn't lacking community in my life at the time. I did try to apply as many prompts as I could to unreal collective. And that was helpful in some regards, 
But the marketing seminar is just like a masterclass in marketing because you get the benefit of Seth Godin's entire career distilled into the most essential, efficient delivery mechanism possible. And it was like world changing. It's if, if you, I mean, you can get a lot of it out of his book. This is marketing now, but it's probably a better version of that and probably worth the, the increased investment best dollar for dollar investment into education materials that I've ever made. Wow. That's fascinating. Appreciate you sharing that. So I want to, I want to get to, uh, I, I feel like going through this background stuff is actually important for sort of what we're, what we're going to talk about and get into with community and, and, and podcasting. But uh, you sort of you know mentioned pretty quickly that you had started workshopping this idea for Unreal Collective, but I mean even you said it yourself you're sort of ahead of your time a little bit. Like where did that idea come from, and how did it turn into something that actually saw the light of day and was a real successful endeavor? Super random, honestly. I was working the job. I was a product manager, um, leading one of our product teams at the healthcare company. It was called Crosschecks at the time. It's now called Olive. It's like a billion dollar plus company. But I hated it. And I was meeting with people all over town all the time just because I spent a lot of my early and mid 20s just meeting people, especially locally. And I would have like five to 10 coffee meetings a week. And there's a guy here in Columbus named Kwame Christian, who is incredibly impressive in his own right. He's been on Creative Elements. He has a podcast called Negotiate Anything that's really, really successful. He's now an instructor for LinkedIn Learning and Crushing It. It was the first time I ever met Kwame in person. And it was one of those meetings where you're kind of dreading it because you're like, neither of us had a real reason for this. I don't even see the overlap in what we do to feel like this is going to be worth either of our time. So I was like kind of dreading it. I went and sat down and we were, t- we were talking and he was just very kind and curious. And he asked me like, so what are you trying to do? And I just, I was in one of those moods where I was just going to like throw things out there. Like, here's how I'm actually feeling. And I was basically like, <laughs> I'm sick of my job and I want to quit. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, if I was you and I had the network that I know you have, I would consider facilitating mastermind groups. And again, just like the pitch story in college, I was like, what, what does that mean? What's a mastermind mm. group? It sounded diabolical. And he said, well, I'm a lawyer <laughs> and I meet with a few other lawyers, you know, once a month and we help each other grow our businesses. And I just thought, oh yeah, I could totally do that. I could totally do that. And I didn't realize like the real insight of this model was how I could very effectively scale an hourly rate in this model and still maintain a ton of time to explore other things or what became the thing, create digital products on my own. Because I just did some math. I was like, okay, if I'm going to assume that this program will be 12 weeks long, and if I think I can charge people $400 for that program, how many people do I need to get into this program to cover my living expenses for a 12-week period? And the math just kind of worked out that way. And over time, I raised the prices quite a bit, so it got easier. But I was just like, "This, this makes sense. I think I can convince 15 people to pay me $400 to spend three months with me where every week for an hour we meet and help them grow their business. I think I know enough people and enough business owners. I can find 15 people to do that. Hmm. It was just kind of like the assumption. And I really thought it was going to be the, the thing before the thing. I was like, this is just going to give me enough time and space to find what company I want to start next. And it just continued. And the community on the back end of that was really, really enjoyable and a great place to spend time for me. I really knew I was helping these people and 
they're talking about the value of the community. And I was like, this is really cool. I'm just going to keep doing this. And then I'm going to keep playing around and making courses for LinkedIn on the side, or I started this podcast. I'm going to do that on the side. And hopefully these things start to bring in money someday. And it just didn't really stop until it was acquired. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's amazing there. And that was over like a two year period ish. Or was it about, I mean, it was even longer. The first, the first free group, free group that I did as a beta test, I worked with five people beginning in May of 2017. And then I had the first paid group at the end of 2017 and I ran it until the end of 2020. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So over three years then I'm, I'm assuming that Kwame is the sort of impetus or maybe the, the connector to what got you started with LinkedIn learning and what would eventually become Linda as well. Is that correct? The opposite, actually. Really? I got into LinkedIn earlier and I helped him get into LinkedIn. Okay. So how did you get into LinkedIn? Super random. Um, <laughs> while I was at Crosschecks leading product, I got an email from a local meetup group called User Experience Design Association, IXDA. I don't know why user experience is IXDA, but it is. And they were looking to do some meetups and they're basically like call for speakers. I was on the mailing list because I was organizing startup weekend before that. And they were one of the meetups groups I would go to and say, bring your designers, come to us. We're going to have a lot of fun this weekend. And I said, that sounds cool. I can do that. I can talk about product because a lot of people get into product from UX. And if not, you're probably going to work with, with product managers. So I pitched them on a product management 101 talk. This startup had an amazing meetup space for our all hands meetings and an incredible camera that just sat there and shot the whole thing for our, our remote employees. And I figured, well, while it's there, I might as well just record it. And so I recorded the talk and then we also had a full-time motion graphics guy on staff who had more time on his hands than you would expect. Well, maybe not because what startup needs a full-time motion graphics guy. Right. And he took the video, the raw video, he overlaid my presentation on it and made this just amazing video. And I said, this is great. I want to put this on my website and to put it on my website. I had to host it somewhere. I put it on YouTube for the better part of a year. That video ranked number one for product management on YouTube. LinkedIn was looking for instructors to teach product and they uh -huh. searched for instructors on YouTube and they found me and they sent me a cold email, which I almost marked as spam and then realized it wasn't. And I had to go through like an audition process. I basically filmed myself and said like, here's a five minute overview of what it would like be like for me teaching. And then we started doing that and I've done seven LinkedIn learning courses now. Wow. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Again, like the serendipities for the, the turn of events there, but I'm also curious because not everyone would be so, I don't know, excited or open to the idea of creating a course and teaching and presenting and sort of being in front of people in this very like public facing manner where you're talking through experiences and what you've learned and how to do something. Is that just like a natural thing? that comes to you and you, you enjoy doing it or is that something that you've kind of acquired or, or learned to do over time? I think I acquired it. It's, it's something that I do get excited about now, despite being an introvert, but it came from organizing startup weekends and having to be the person on stage. And even before that, that entrepreneurship club I was talking about that I found when I was a freshman, my senior year, I led that club. And so I opened every meeting as, as the president of it. And that taught me how to be a little bit more comfortable startup weekend got me way, way more comfortable. <laughs> but when LinkedIn came knocking, 
it's it's a publishing agreement like it's it's an advance and it's royalties and they own the content but i was like this is a really great forcing function for me to get my thoughts on paper to organize the way i think about things and i'm sure i can leverage this somehow somewhere someday but in the meantime it's a publishing agreement and that's pretty good for somebody who's you know trying to make a full-time living on his own it it really de-risked the the act of building a course hmm yeah. I'm trying to piece together the timeline a little bit to get into it for your background. You've been involved in so many different projects, which makes it incredibly fun to explore, but also challenging to, to walk through. But you also mentioned Startup Weekend. So could you explain what that is, when that started, and sort of what your involvement was with it? Sure. So yeah, I'll try to make this timeline make a lot more sense. I pitched that app idea in 2010, maybe 2011. It didn't go well. But it opened up this like idea of I like I want to make a startup company. I want to build an app, whatever. In 2012, I entered another pitch competition for another app idea, and it was like a it was a grant. Even it was a grant for sustainable technologies and solutions. And they were kind enough to write back to me and be very specific in my rejection, saying this is not at all what this grant is for. But mm. here's 75 bucks. Buy a ticket to Startup Weekend, and pitch it there. And so my first startup weekend was in 2012. I walked in, I didn't know anybody and I was scared shitless. Honestly, I pitched two ideas. I got zero votes. Nobody wanted to help me build them. I was walking out and somebody behind me said, Hey, I liked your ideas. You should have worked harder to get votes. And I turned around and I was like, Oh wow. Thank you. And she invited me to join her team and we worked together that weekend. She ended up becoming an organizer for Startup Weekend later that year. And in 2013, she brought me on to help organizing the local Columbus Startup Weekends. And I did that for three or four years. We did three events per year, which is insane and just like too much. But we did it for like three years. And then I started facilitating. I facilitated events around the country. And that was just a lot of public speaking experience because you're getting in front of 100 people at a time. We had 100 plus people at every event. And you're like quieting them down. You're leading the room through breakout activities. Like it, it really is pretty demanding, but yeah, it was about 2012 through 2016. I was doing startup weekends. Okay. Yeah. That, that's amazing. That's an interesting, I think kind of sneak peek into one of the things I want to get to here in a second, which is community and sort of all the different touch points you've had with community between startup weekend and person between the masterminds being a connector between sort of LinkedIn, like this whole like world of entrepreneurship and all the other things that, that are in between there. I also started these podcasts, which we'll get to a little bit later, but in the midst, you started something else also called freelancing school. Could you walk me through really quickly sort of what that is and where that's at today? Yeah, this is also kind of an accident. LinkedIn started with courses and products found my way into courses on freelancing because as Unreal matured, instead of working with startup founders, which was what my assumption was, a lot of service-based business owners were coming to me because they were really good at a skill or a craft and not so good at managing their business or finding new clients. And so I got really good at helping them do that. And that gave me an opportunity to make a course for LinkedIn Learning and that course was great. And I looked at it and I said, wow, I made some awesome material here. I want to go deeper on these things and I want to introduce screen shares and templates and stuff on my own. I'm going to turn this into my own 
like my first courses that I own that I produce and I sell. And I thought that was just going to live on the unreal collective domain. I thought the unreal model was going in three directions. I was, I had this whole thing mapped out and it was beautiful. I was like, you have the community membership, which is going to pay for my bills. You have the accelerator model, which uh, is where I'm really going to make more money. But then I'm also going to start to develop digital products called guides. And so this was going to be the first Unreal Collective guide. On a whim, I was on instant domain search and realized that like these generic top-level domains of .school were available. And I was like, this would make a pretty cool landing page. I'll just make freelancing.school the landing page. And that has since you know grown into its own platform, which I'm so glad I went in that direction. But again, it was just kind of like one step at a time. I was kind of fumbling my way and and just making these split decisions that became like, good things long-term, but yeah, at some point I realized that that platform itself was a good property to start to build up because it can generate its own passive income stream. It doesn't need to be tied to me. That could be a saleable property one day. And it's been just a, you know, part-time thing building on the side. Yeah, that's fun. Well, one of the things I really wanted to highlight was, and again, you, you mentioned it briefly was the acquisition of Unreal Collective. And I was into SBI Media, Smart Passive Income with Pat Flynn, if I remember correctly. And if I remember in the story right, that was because you were actually consulting SPI on building their community. Am I getting the story correctly? Yep, you are. Yeah. Basically, How- basically, Matt Gartland, the co-CEO of SPI Media now, he had some experience with the Unreal Collective Accelerator and as part of that, he was in our Slack group and he just saw the community that had built there. Mm. And as SPI turned their eye towards community as an organization, and I think Matt was really prescient on this for identifying this as an opportunity, he just realized like, Jay made a culture here that is good. I want help making that same culture here. And what he's told me now is like, from the beginning, he wanted me to like really come and join the team and lead that. So yeah, that's that's how the the sequence of events happened. I, I think I started working with them in April of 2020, which was a real gift because that's like the beginning of the pandemic and yeah. everything was uncertain. And I was like, wow, it's so cool to do this really cool project that is paying me well, that gives me a lot of comfort and certainty in these times. And it's something that feels so well aligned to what I want to do. I was doing some other consulting at the time that was like innovation consulting for a Fortune 500 company. And it was fun and I felt like I could do it, but it didn't feel like it was aligned with everything else I was doing. It, it, it was just like one of those purely for the money things. I wasn't going to try to build on that or make that an arm of what I wanted to do. So this was a real gift that I knew like this is a good ongoing client relationship that affords me that time and space that Unreal was so that I don't even have to push Unreal and the accelerators as hard while I know that my specific customer is really hurting right now anyway. So that became like a season where, okay, I'm going to lean into consulting. I'm going to move away from some of my more high touch, like, uh, accelerator programs. And I'm going to lean then into free content on my own side through creative elements, the podcast articles on freelancing school. I was learning a ton about SEO at the time. And that's been just like a boon for me too, because those articles that I started developing in March, April of 2020 now drive like by far the majority of the traffic to both of my websites. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. And that's a relatively short amount of time uh, as well. I, I learned a ton. There are three videos by Miles Beckler 
that. I feel like I could send somebody in succession and it's like, you watch these three videos, you have the absolute playbook for how to rank on page one of Google. And I'm in like the top two or three results for all of the things that I tried. Wow. What, what are those videos? I'll, I'll include them in the, in the show notes. I don't know if I'm going to get the titles, but you'll probably be able to do it. And if you follow up with me, I'll send them. The one yeah, is keyword research. He uses a tool called KW finder, but you can do the same thing through Ahrefs. KW finder does a free version. So keyword research to find things that you like. Then he has a tool of looking at your top 10, like the top 10 results for that keyword that exists on Google. Now, once you've identified like, Hey, this has a good amount of search traffic, but also the domain ranking required to rank for it is within range for me. Then he has like this spreadsheet template where he's like, drop 10 links in here, use SEO minion and look at the number of H ones or sorry, number of H two, H three, H fours. Look at the number of words. He just walks through how to do that. You put it into a, like a, a matrix and then you average it. And it's like to be in the top X results, you need to hit these marks or better. And assuming you did good research on the overall competitiveness and what your website's able to do, you can do that. It just worked, man. There, there weren't a lot of people hey, competing for the same like freelancing keywords that I was. And it just went gangbusters. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, look at you. I mean, so, so SEO wasn't really a sort of key or, or core kind of skill set, but then you learned it and then immediately applied it. And now you're reaping the benefits. Yes. And the, th- sorry, the third video that he had was about oh, yeah. just like creating an outline hmm. for that. Like if I know, okay, I need five H twos and 10 H threes. That video was about like, make that outline and you know, the word count now just flush it out. That's awesome. Well, I'll definitely have the links to those in the show notes. I think that's probably my cue now to get Miles Beckler on the show and uh, have him as one of the, the feature guests. He's great. But, yeah, an amazing case study. I mean, well done. Because not everyone can say that they that, that they did that, especially that they're on the you know the first page and that it's actually driving business results as well. It's one of the sort of the key missing factors that a lot of people miss. But community building has been one of these big parts. I want to get to podcasting afterwards, but to touch on it pretty quickly, I mean, obviously knew something because you're working with Pat Flynn and Smart Passive Income, not a small endeavor like they're I feel like they're very like cutting edge really smart people really kind to people and they decided to work with you that you had something sort of a piece of you know not secret knowledge but a specialized skill set and knowledge that they could use to build their community I'm wondering maybe we can we can start with sort of like the opposite the inverse like what are the big mistakes pitfalls misconceptions like why do communities and community different community different events fail in your eyes I had uh, a mentor or a friend, we'll call him a friend, who had this line that's really stuck with me. He said, a community is a place that misses you when you're gone. And that sounds simple to say. And you start to think like tactically, like, okay, well, how do I measure when someone hasn't logged in and send them a DM and do that? And like, you could do that. That would probably work. But the point being, these are human people and they know when their investment of energy into something is good or not. Like, Human beings move towards pleasure. We move away from pain. And so if you create, I like to use this word gratifying. If you create a gratifying experience where every time I have the input of energy, attention, vulnerability, I need to get the response back from that of I'm glad I did that. And most communities don't think through how is that going to happen in the experience of somebody in your community? Because they'll get you to the point 
I'm seeing this now and we're going to see a lot more of it for the next 12 months. Creator or organization with audience says community tools are better now. If I throw the two together, magic. But it just doesn't work like that because what that will do is it will get people to the point where they'll say, okay, I'll bite, I'll join, I'll create my profile, I'll make it look good because everybody has a certain level of vanity and self-interest. And then they'll find their way to and introduce your channel, introduce yourself channel, because again, vanity, self-interest, and they'll put what is actually a good amount of time into answering these prompts to tell you about themselves and they'll get crickets. And that is not a gratifying experience. That's a painful experience because not only was that not rewarded with attention, but you might also even feel like you are not welcome there mm. and you're gone forever. No reason to ever come back. And people don't think through like the what's next. They think like if they introduce themselves, magic will happen and now they're in, they're going to come back. But that first experience is probably really bad and they'll probably never come back. What is it then that gets people to feel welcomed, come back? Like I always hate to ask about, oh, like, you know, what are the, the real, you know, tactical kind of things that you should do and, you know, just give us like the secret sauce. But really, I feel like what it comes down to is what, what are the practices? What are the things that create a gratifying experience that get people to come back and feel like they're a member that they would be missed if they were gone? Well, I got to tip my hat to you, Corey, because when I joined Swipe Files, I got the DM from you that I know is automated through Zapier and Circle. But it, <laughs> if I didn't know that, it came across really well. It was warm, it was welcoming, it was timely, it was encouraging, and it was from the person who made the space. So I'm already feeling like I'm welcome here because the person who decides who is welcome here has told me I'm welcome here. And that will get you a long way for a long time. If you are willing to just put in the energy to personally welcome the people who join the community, you are head and shoulders above most communities out there because they'll do it for like the first couple of weeks after they launch when it's new and exciting, but then they're not checking in and it's a graveyard because you as the creator of the community have to first model the behavior that you want to see come through in that community. It's just building culture. It's like building a company culture and that comes from the founders. Same is true of a community. You need to model the behavior that you sit, that you want to see to set the norms and expectations so that other people begin to do it after you. And when they do that, you move into a new phase where you need to publicly and loudly appreciate the people who are doing the behavior that you want them to do. Because mm. otherwise, them modeling after you, your behavior is not a gratifying experience. So if they say, oh, this is how we welcome people, I can do that and they do that and it's not responded by the person who was just welcomed or it's not appreciated by you. Remember you have status in the eyes of these people who are joining your community. If you say, Hey, just saw you welcome this person. You beat me to it. Thanks so much for doing that. And it means a lot when other people are there to help make people feel welcome here. Gratifying experience. They know they earned status in your eyes. You know, they earned status in your eyes. You're more likely to go above and beyond for that person. You want to keep that person happy. The, the dirty little secret about, especially paid communities is there are some members that you would rather them have a free membership than to leave. And that's where you want to get people to. And when people get there, they know that they're not going to like strong arm you or something, but they know when that happens and it becomes a very positive, mutually beneficial thing. 
But the problem I see with so many creators or brands or organizations, they just don't plan to put that kind of effort in in the beginning because you can't just do it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Like you need to be the person setting the tone in every element of the community forever. Because even if things are going good and you're like, okay, this is on autopilot now, I'm gonna take my foot off the gas. That can backslide real, real quick. It's a constantly moving target. And you need to recognize that and decide honestly, if that's even what you're willing to do. Cause if not, it's, it's probably not worth starting it in the first place. It's not going to work out. Yeah. man, that's amazing. I, I love that kind of two-step process of really just, I mean, it comes back to like the, the hooked kind of model of near y'all and triggers and habits and really like these core psychological natural behaviors that we have as human beings. And uh, you said one, you know, model of behavior you want to see in the community. And then two, appreciate that publicly to those who exhibit that behavior to encourage them and to uh, reward them with some sort of, you know, they yeah, see like, Oh, right? if I do this, it gets rewarded. Great. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, so you had mentioned, you know, it, for example, if someone else beat you to the punch to, to welcome someone new into the community and maybe you would give them a DM and you say, Hey, you know, you beat me to it. Really appreciate it. Just wanted to say thanks because that's something I really, you know, want to make sure that we do. That's actually a more like private sort of, you know, one-on-one kind of interaction. So when you say appreciate publicly, do you also mean to, I don't know, post on Twitter or to post within the community to recognize someone or are there other sort of, uh, recurring or types of ways that you can, you know, recognize people in a way that will uh, keep that flywheel moving? It can be both. I feel like your resp- your response should be like commensurate with the amount of effort it took for the person to do the thing. So like if they welcome somebody, I'm not going to send an email to my entire email list saying, hey, let me tell you about what just happened to my community. Somebody said hello <laughs> and somebody else said, hey, welcome. You know what I mean? So I would say like in a lot of circumstances, a direct message is meaningful enough. I also will liberally use the like button to show like, I'm glad you did that because sometimes Mm -hmm. people post something and part of them is wondering like, was it okay if I did that? And if you just hit like, that's like, yes, not only is it okay that you did that, I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. If somebody does something even more awesome, like let's say you hear from the community that two members got together and recorded a podcast. Now I'm going to share that podcast to the community and be like, I love seeing collaborations like this. I love when two people come together and do this. It's showing them and everybody else like, Hey, if I get together with somebody else here, not only can that be a good experience for me, but now Corey is also helping us showcase the work that we made together. Like there are ways that you can reinforce behavior by having very subtle, non spammy promotion of the people in your community. We at SPI have a channel where every week we recognize a member. We thought we could do it monthly, but that's 12 people and we have hundreds and hundreds of members. Weekly recognition, 52 members a year, great. So every week we say member of the week is this person. We give a little story as to what we appreciate them doing in the community and we link off to their stuff. And then a lot of people Mm -hmm. in the community are like, hey, this is awesome. I love Cheryl, Cheryl's amazing. This is something Cheryl did for me. Now people are aspiring to that. And Cheryl's like, holy cow, these people really do appreciate me. And you know, it's that that miss you when you're gone type of thing. So there are big and small ways that you can do this, but it's a forever game by not engaging with somebody or not appreciating something somebody did. Even if it's just a quick comment, if you don't like that, it sends some sort of message, which is either I didn't see it or I don't care, or this was not what I wanted. Yeah. 
right? Maybe it's like no no message is a message. Maybe it's a message of disapproval, or you know, it's kind of ambiguous, right? This is really, really sort of core. I'm feeling both guilty and encouraged. Encouraged because there's there's been like these things that are just like done sort of out of happenstance. Because when I was early on Twitter, I was like, you know what, this whole like likes. Like just giving away a like is completely for free. Like so I'm just gonna free. like, like oh every gosh. single Even post that comes free. on my feed, right? And the, my face pops up in there. Like I tell them that I'm supporting them. Like everyone wants likes, and it's free for me to give them. So I'm just gonna give them. So in the community, I I purposely like everything, and there are one or two things that I don't like, and that's sort of a and that sends a message, a message. right? In, in the same way, actually, I I had noticed that Circle, the platform that the community is built on has sort of like this top members, you know, analytics feature essentially. And so uh, I forgot how I started it, but I was, I basically was like, oh, look at like, these are like the top members, like love these people, like just want to show some appreciation. And then someone was like, man, I want to be on that list. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like I, like, I guess that kind of makes sense. Like I would think the same way of, I, I love public recognition and it feels good and feels good to be sort of like a top member, like you're, you know, giving back to the community. And so now it's a monthly thing where I, you know, just take a, a brief screenshot and I, I tag them and I have this sort of like a ranking system. It's a little bit maybe too, too like numbers driven, but uh, I think it's a great, you know, practice overall. I am feeling guilt, feeling guilty, however, because I feel like I haven't done a good job of a lot of the public recognition of those good behaviors that I've been seeing. I was just talking to, so right before you, I recorded with uh, Ramley John, who's the managing director of you know Product Led, and 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 we were talking about how he was like, man, I just wanted to thank you because you know me and Amanda, another girl, another lady in the in the community, have become friends, and like now we're collaborating on all this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's so cool! Like I love it, man. That's just like such a big win. But like I'm just keeping that for myself. And you have to train yourself to get, you know, to, to build that muscle to really, you know, share that stuff kind of publicly for the benefit of the community, really. Totally. 100%. It's everything that you're doing is also helping to show opportunities of things that you are okay to do here and encouraged to do here. You know, every community probably has like a pretty strict, no spammy self-promotion policy, but, you know, think about indie hackers. I know you spent some time on indie hackers, Drew Riley. Harry Dry, every post they put on Indie Hackers is incredibly self-promotional, but it's also super contextual and useful. So mm -hmm. that's a net positive, and we'll accept that here, and we'll encourage that. Sometimes you need to grant permission in that way so people know that there are ways of doing that because at the end of the day, like most people joining communities in like the online business space are definitely interested in meeting partners, customers, users, things like that. So like a degree of being able to share in the platform that is the community goes a long way. And if I can find ways to do that, that are appreciated by the person who runs the community and the people in the community, I'm going to do that. Maybe that's being a top member because I know that once a month I'm going to get shouted out and people are going to know who I am. And that's a plus. Maybe that's, I know if I engage a lot in Corey's community, I have a better chance of getting on his podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a viable thing too. You know, like some of these things, you know there are, I don't call them ulterior motives, but secondary motives, and that's okay yeah. if it's a net positive for everybody involved. And everybody knows that like they have uh, a certain leash based on the value they bring to the community, and sometimes I'll cash in that leash and be like, this is probably a little too on the nose. And I realize as a community member, okay, but 
because I know how this place operates, I'm going to have to give, 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 give for a while now, happily, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll earn that leash back. But, you know, I think the best community builders are people who almost internalize their community as like part of their being. And they know when the thing is healthy. They know when the thing needs more food, more love, more attention. It's it's very much like a living creature. And it has these vital signs. And it could be slowly dying. And you can see it in vital signs, even if you don't like know that it's dead yet. And so a good community builders know like vitals are dropping. <laughs> like I gotta get in there and 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 feed this thing. The alarms. And that's a hard thing to to teach. It it really comes from just like knowing your people and knowing the space and and spending a lot of time there. Hmm. Uh, speaking of sort of taking the temperature of the community and and the health, one of the interesting conundrums I wanted to get your your thoughts on was that traditionally, like with a social network or any sort of networks driven platform that's connecting parties together, there's a network effect where you have this great sort of viral loop and you have these, you know, that's like a spider web, right? And one person turns into two people, turns into four, turns into eight, turns into, you know, a thousand. Communities have a sort of interesting conundrum, or at least this is like the experience I've had, or maybe just a phenomenon, or maybe just something I've just absorbed from others that that isn't right, or that's wrong, is that as the community grows, the quality of the community can deteriorate and it actually can become less and less useful over time because you lose some of that personal touch or maybe the original kind of connection or feeling or culture of the, of the community is lost. How do you combat that? Or, or is that something that happens or, or, or rather is it maybe a myth? Definitely happens. And this is one of the few things that I'll put on as like a tooling question because I just fundamentally do not believe that a real-time synchronous platform like a Discord or a Slack can handle growth past a few hundred, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have more people in there, but like, I don't think there can be more than 100 people actually active and engaged at any given time in those platforms. So that's why I err on the side of uh, forum-based technology for communities that have aspirations of growing. Uh, Circle is definitely my platform of choice. You've chosen it for swipe files as well, which I think is smart. Replatforming a community is a very difficult, often fatal thing to do. So like you want to shoot right, you want to shoot straight, you want to shoot once. And I think circles are really good bet if you want to grow your community. Now I do think about this growing thing a lot and we've made a couple of very intentional, but in the short term, painful decisions with SPI in particular. One of them being we this year moved to a quarterly enrollment schedule. We already had an application in place. We're already accepting probably about 40% of applications that come through pass our objective mathematical equation that gives them a pass. Hmm. So we're already rejecting quote unquote revenue, but you have to be meaningfully exclusive to a degree or meaningfully curated as a community for it to have value. You can do that sometimes with just messaging. Like people know joining swipe files, you're joining a marketing community. It's probably not the best place for an accountant necessarily, or somebody, a member of a CPA firm. They can self guide out of that. But with SPI pro, we wanted that to be a space for more established business owners. SPI has historically served beginners or advanced beginners, but the brand has existed for 13 years. And there are some really interesting, awesome, 
impressive entrepreneurs who have been around for a long time that are in the audience, but we had no way of serving them. And SPI Pro is the answer for that. To make that a place where those people want to hang out, you've got to curate that and keep it for those people. And so that's where the application came in. That was actually the first decision. I'm sorry, we have three decisions now. We were accepting applications initially on kind of a rolling basis, uh, monthly, if not weekly. And that was problematic. One, because the pure operational overhead of like checking the applications, we have a provisional pass as well, which requires some manual review. So there was like the manual process of reviewing applications, then putting them in the convert kit to send them the accepted criteria and get them in, in there. But also it just felt like the community couldn't gel as a culture because there was just constantly new faces. So we made the decision to do membership on a quarterly basis so that when people join quarterly, it's just like four times per year, we're getting used to new people coming in. Also, we can make a big deal out of that period of time and really connect the people joining in that period of time so that the culture could sustain over time. And in the periods Mm. between those enrollments, we're doing things like I'm matching people into small mastermind groups that self-govern and run every week. And that's like the most successful part of our membership. It's just part of membership. You can join a mastermind if you want. And then just this week, we finished something that's taken forever to figure out. And I'm so excited about, which is a referral program, which should be easy. You have a referral program. That's awesome. The complicating factor is we have an application. And so right. to track through an application process and attribute to somebody was really, really difficult to do that in a way that uh, is automated and scales. And so we figured that out from a technical perspective. And now I'm really pumped about it because the combination of having an application and that referral program, first of all, the brand is smart passive income. We're literally helping you generate passive income. Like 25% of a membership fee is returned to you every month for the life of the member. Mm. Awesome. But because of that structure, because it's an ongoing referral program, now it really aligns incentives because if I've referred four people and now it's paying for my membership, I want those four people to stick around because I'm getting this membership for free. So I'm more likely to invest time in this community. I'm also more likely to, you know, try to get people who are a good fit because I know they're going to pass the application. So that has been like slow building and slow getting to this point, but I'm really, really excited about it because I think the best way for this community to grow or any community to grow, especially an exclusive community is from the inside. And now we have like a really elegant way of, of offering that. That's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. Cause I feel like those are the types of things that are like, it really is kind of cutting edge because not a lot of people are figuring this stuff out. Like a lot of people are experiencing these types of problems and we've sort of gone through waves and maybe seasons of this before through different, different eras of community. But now, especially now that we're all in the thick of it, like this is the hard stuff that that's difficult to, to figure out. You, you mentioned that last bit right there that you think that communities should grow from the inside out. Could you expand on that just a little bit and what you mean? Well, if you think about culture, like you want, if you have something good with your community right now, the risk is you bring in so much from the outside, so many new members who don't have relation to that thing that it no longer feels like it's owned by the group of people that were there. So mm-hmm. when it grows from within, you're already getting a filter of culture fit because the people care about it. And it's just a more meaningful 
pitch ultimately like at the end of the, at the end of the day are you going to join my community because i tell you you should join my community or because someone in my community is like this is awesome i'm getting a ton out of it and you know and trust them you're gonna you're gonna follow that every time one 100 and there's just a limit to what you can do personally like if you do it this way it's just make it's it's just limitless like your reach is now extended through every single one of those individuals and then the individuals that they that they're connected to it it i think it just makes a lot more sense that way yeah well amazing i'm going to put a cap on the community discussion because we could probably go on for a lot longer but i'll have to bug you after hours and maybe i can include some 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 of that content a little bit later but i want to get to podcasting because you have two podcasts you have upside you have creative elements upside you've been doing for a while creative elements is actually relatively you know, new-ish, but both have been these long-term endeavors. Before I get into the questions and some context, you just really briefly, how'd you start those podcasts and why? Upside started airing in May of 2018. We started working on it in December of 2017, actually the same time I was interviewing for the LinkedIn gig. I, living in Columbus, there's a lot of startup activity here and investors on the coasts were coming to me because I was well-connected to the community here and saying, we're going to come to Ohio. We want to invest here. Can you introduce us to some founders? And I was like, hell yeah, I'll introduce you to my friends. But also I wish I could invest in my friends. And so I started talking to my friend, Eric, who's in finance to try to figure out like, what would it look like to raise a small fund to do this? And we realized that was unrealistic for what we were willing to put time into at the time. But we thought, I still want to get practice at this. So what if we started a podcast where we interview founders and interview them almost as if we are angel investors. So we can get some reps. We can figure out like, how do we pick the companies we want to talk to? What questions do we ask? Can we start to change our own perception and judgment to know like, is this a good investable opportunity? And it just became a, a, a podcast I've been doing for, for three years now. I think today was episode 179, I want to say. Like it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That is a lot. And it's been fun. And we focus on pre-Series A companies that are not based in San Francisco. So we're kind of on this this trend of the rest of the country outside of the Valley. And now, historically, now that it's existed for like three years, you look back and some of the companies we've talked to have raised Series A. Several have been acquired. It's like a pretty cool portfolio that we had Mm. in terms of just guests on the show before they had much. And I think it'll be a really cool time capsule one day to look back and be like, this yeah. company had an interview back when they were pre-series A and they did this. And maybe someday I can point to this and be like, this is why you should invest in my fund because look how good I've been picking companies for five mm. years. You know, it's kind of a long-term, long-term play. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's a great portfolio approach. You can really publicly show sort of your, your ability to not only sort of pick companies, quote unquote, but also evaluate them uh, too. And then creative elements, I have to give you a hat tip because I'm a listener of, of both podcasts, but creative elements is like maybe like my top favorite show now. Seriously? And it just sort of came out of, yeah, it came out of nowhere. And I was just like, what is this? This is so cool. I love the premise, like the, the people you've had on so far. So, and that's a relatively new endeavor as well. So how did that come to be? First of all, that is the greatest compliment you could ever give a creator. So thank (laughs) you. And that is literally the bar that I strive for. I had a conversation with Brendan Hufford about this. That's like the bar I want because in the podcasting space, you kind of have to be somebody's favorite if you're going to stick around and really find and build an audience. So that show started because as my business and life moved away from startups and more towards like the creator life, I loved podcasting, but it felt like 
that was too distinct from the rest of what I was trying to do. So first and foremost, I wanted to create a like even more commercially viable show that could generate a good income. I also wanted an excuse to work with Jeff Umbro at the Podglomerate. And okay. I thought this would be my vessel to do that. And probably like you, through happenstance and just like the way I've invested my time over the last several years, I had built some friendships and relationships with really impressive, awesome people. And I had no way to like collaborate with them on anything or no mm-hmm. reason to collaborate with them on anything. And this felt like a very good way to do that. And so the premise of creative elements is talking to high profile creators about how they make a living from their art and creativity. I kind of think of it as like a, how I built this for the uh, creator class, because a lot of these people, James clear is the example I use all the time because his book atomic habits has now sold 4 million copies, which is bonkers. But when he goes on podcasts, he usually talks about habits because that's his thing. I want to talk to James about how to make a living as a full-time writer. And it's the same with every creator creator that comes on the show for, for the most part. And it's been so much fun. I, I put more effort into that than anything else in, in my like personal creative portfolio right now. I won't say more than SPI. That's where most of my time goes, but I wanted to make it a narrative interview style show where I put a lot of care into the interview. So it's like an, it's like an experience. I wanted it to be really oh, yeah. good. So I appreciate you saying that. You've delivered on that for sure. And I, I mean, to my understanding, you've been sort of rewarded with it as well. You shared fairly recently that you crossed 500,000 downloads with only 55-ish episodes, which is outstanding. I mean, that, that's an average, if you just look at that math, of, you know, what about 50,000 uh, downloads per episode, which is nothing to sniff at because if I remember, actually, you and Eric have sent me some some stats on podcast sponsorship details. And one of those was about sort of the standard deviations, totally. sort of distribution of, you know, the podcast and you know, it, it's the bar is barely low for being like a top podcast. I mean, you might know the numbers better than me, but I think it was like, you know, anything over a thousand downloads per episode and you're like top 10% yeah. or maybe even top 5%. Yep. And I think it's more than 6,000 downloads and you're the top 3%. And your math is generous, but wrong. 55-ish episodes, 500 something oh, downloads. It's like 10,000. <laughs> There we go. There we go. That makes much more sense. But the show is growing as well, right? So that yeah. skews now the yeah earlier ones or the later ones are have a little bit larger. But we'll, we'll keep it at fifty thousand. It'll be it'll be, it'll be there soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. That it's it's doing so well, which is like incredibly gratifying. And it's now that you know over my own career over the last four four years or so, you know I've I've just like started building little pizza pieces of infrastructure all over the place. You know, started with freelancing school. I had courses there. Then I had upside, then I had creative elements, and then I started developing uh, podcasts like the pros, my course on podcasting that did incredibly well. Now I'm starting to do these workshops that become standalone products and those are doing well. And meanwhile, as people discover any one of those things and have a good experience with it, they start discovering the other things and all the tides are lifted. You had a tweet recently about like how magical it feels to go from a couple of subscribers per day to like 10. And that's just like the math that adds up. I'm experiencing that the same way with my email list and the podcast has been even more crazy. It's, it's hard to port audiences across these different platforms, but like there's a little trickle all the time. And if you can turn up that faucet just a little bit in all these areas, eventually it all just kind of explodes. And that's, that's just been like the thesis that I've been building towards for several years. Yeah. 
Yeah, man. Well, I want to get to sort of like the guests, the sort of podcast marketing and distribution and, you know, why it's such a, a large show uh, relatively recently. But I have to also ask because Creative Elements, I feel like is one of those kind of like, you know, chef's kiss masterpieces where you just look at it you're like, man, you really just nailed it on every aspect between the cover art, which is outstanding. And I modeled my own cover art after I even hired the same designer and Uriel, Uriel did a great, fantastic You worked job. with Uriel? Yeah, oh my yeah, God. absolutely. Amazing. Because I yeah, thought it looked familiar. I, I'm like, this this is kind of reminiscent. Absolutely. Because I looked at creative elements and I thought, man, creative elements. And you have the elements and you have the periodic table of elements and the illustration's amazing. And then with each episode you have the guests and then you have sort of the element that they embody. But like how did that how does that go from was that just like a Eureka moment where you're like, oh, this is this would be a really cool premise. I'm gonna do this, this, and this with the cover art and the elements. Or did it, you know, how does that something like that come together? That's a really good question. I'm I'm gonna try to think back here. I f- God, this is hard. I'm trying to remember order of operations because like I had the first thing I had was this premise of I want something in like the creator world that's more aligned with what I'm doing now. And then I thought, well, I am a shitty artist. And for the people that I want to reach to take this seriously, like I'm going to have to get somebody else to do the the visuals. And so I was working with Uriel through Unreal Collective and I loved his illustration. And I was like, you're going to be the guy. I wanted to have the word creative. And I think I knew like, okay, I think I can get James on the show. I think I can get Seth. So what do I want to talk about with these people? And for me personally, I was curious, like how do you actually get to do these things? I don't think I had like this one major Eureka moment. I know the element piece of it. There's a point in time where I was looking at my bookshelf and looking at tribe of mentors and just how brilliant of a book that was that just mm-hmm. rode itself because Tim literally just had a template and he emailed it to these impressive people. And then that became a book. And I thought to myself, how could I be writing a book at the same time that I'm making the show? And the answer was like, if I can get these people to talk about the things that they're doing that is helping them be successful, I can probably start to pull that together into really interesting visuals, like a table periodic table. And that's where that idea came from. Then you ran with that with the mad scientist on the front. And then I thought, yeah, I could just make an interesting book out of that. I could orient the chapters around these different elements. I could like pull stories into it from there. So I was really trying to like fit all these things together. And I think it was just like a slow molding process. And the initial episodes weren't remarkable at all. Like I, I first interviewed Jason Zook because I knew he would take a chance on me because I was in his community wandering aimfully still am. And I knew he would do me the favor. And I just sent it to Jeff as I did like a rambling 10 minute Mark Marin style intro where I was like, the intro is going to be about relationships. They're going to get to meet me and I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be real. I'm going to go off the cuff. And then I did the interview pretty much unedited. And I think I had like an outro where I had a couple of takeaways and Jeff listened to it. He was like, there's a show here, but it's not unlike most interview shows. And he just pushed me. He's like, I think you should do a little bit more. I think you should cut most of the intro because what the hell is this? And he was like, I think you should do some things where you might do some like cut-ins or voiceovers or something. And I'm just listening to this and I'm still like just trying to get by myself as an independent. I'm like, fuck, this sounds like so much more work. I don't even know if I can do that. Yeah. The original thing was good. What the hell? And then he told me to listen to a show called Without Fail from Gimlet. I listened to Without Fail. And I think implicitly because I've been listening to Tropical MBA for a long time, 
I took a lot of inspiration from those two shows in the format. And yeah, now I think of it as like a narrative experience and I want to make sure I'm telling the story in a good way. And I feel like I have a really good sense for that. The edit has gotten a lot easier, still a lot of time. And yeah, I'm, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I love that I can look back on this and it is of itself kind of a, I want it to be kind of evergreen and archival. Someday I also hope to get my website in a place where I can let you filter by either medium or platform. Like I want to listen to episodes of people who write and use Twitter. Well, Mm. great. Here's the five you should listen to. I want to listen to people who are on YouTube. Great. Here's the five you should listen to. That's what I'm trying to get with that because there, there are formulas here that are emerging. And I think there's a lot of sawdust as part of this that can be packaged up pretty easily if, and when I want to. That's amazing. I, this is gold to me because I mean, it's selfishly, it's sort of re or, uh, reinforcing my own kind of thesis and theme of, you know, what it really means to build a swipe file and take inspiration from other places. And you just described to me how you built a podcast off of ideas from travel mentors and tropical MBA and without fail and like all these different kind of sources that are all swirling around your subconscious that finally, you know, produce something amazing like creative elements and, yeah. uh, and even, you know, from the feedback from it's your audio engineer. Is that right? Or was that Jeff, the, from Pogglomerate? Jeff, the from, from the Pogglomerate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And there was also a little bit of inspiration from how I built this too. I think, even though I never really yeah. listened to that show, we always described yeah. upside as this is how I'm building this. We don't even know mm-hmm. if it's going to work out, but this is how I'm building this. And now as I've created creative elements, it's like, this is how I built this, but for a very specific type of creator or entrepreneur, yeah. I guess, who is a creator. It's unbundling how I built this. It's genius. I, I love it. So first couple of guests, you mentioned Jason Zook. You mentioned sort of off the off the cuff that you thought you could get Seth on. I'm assuming that's because of Ald MBA and, and the marketing seminar. James Clear as well. Like not everyone is connected to, the, to these types of people, but like how did you approach the guest list and, and also just like getting them onto the show? I had a thesis that guests look at your previous guests. I wanted to be able to get big guests. I wanted this to be a vehicle where I could talk to anybody that I wanted to. And there's this like tired adage in podcasting where it's like, well, you can't do that right away. You got to start with C level people to go to B level people and then to <laughs> a level people slowly over time. And I was like, screw that. Let's start with a level people and stay high the whole time. But before I could just like shoot the shot with Seth or anybody else, like I needed to get some practice. I need to make sure I had the format down. So Jason became my prototype episode. That honestly was the sales pitch to Jeff. I wasn't going to get on the podglomerate without having a product. So like the first thing I did, I was like, I need really good artwork that looks legitimate. I need really good music. I need a guest that is believable. And I'm going to pull that together into an episode and say, this is what I'm thinking. Can we work together? And without doing that approach, I don't think Jeff would have taking a flyer on me, but it like came from investing. Like I knew I couldn't do design, but I'm trying to talk to creative people here and they're not going to take me seriously if it doesn't look great. It's a podcast. If it doesn't sound good people aren't going to take it seriously. I wanted to go out of the gates and blow the doors off. And so Seth wasn't the first interview I did, but it was the first interview I released because people look at that. So with him, I went through the podcasting fellowship, his podcasting course, the first one they did, it, Mm. it, it came out. We were about a month away from launching Upside when that happened. And I emailed them and I was basically like, 
we already have this show. We're going to be doing it anyway, but I would love to go through the podcasting fellowship and be an early success story. And so we did that. It was a good experience. We were ahead of everybody else. And so I didn't like get a lot from the curriculum of that, but I followed up with Seth and I was like, Hey, just wanted to say thank you for the podcasting fellowship because of that upside is this much better. By the way, it was just rated in fortune magazine as a top business podcast. He responded immediately because Seth honestly responds immediately to like most of his emails. I don't understand how, but he responded immediately. He's like, this is great. Uh, I'm going to put it on the sales page and he put it on the sales page for the next podcasting fellowship. Wow. Then when I wanted to interview him for creative elements, I followed up on that same email thread from two years previous. Hmm. So he saw that we had already corresponded. I was kind, thoughtful. He also saw that I take podcasting seriously. And so if he's going to go on a show, he's going to give me a shot. James, I met back in 2015 here in Columbus because he lives in Columbus, believe it or not. That's when right. He mo- when he moved back here, he put together a small entrepreneur dinner and somehow I was on that guest list and we just kept in touch. We would meet once or twice a year, talk about what was going on. I remember I'd talking to him like while he was writing the book and it was just wild looking back on it. That was just a favor. I was like, Hey, I'm doing the show. It doesn't exist yet. You don't have to say yes. But I went, went to his house. We sat down, we recorded. Those are two pretty strong episodes to go out with. And now when I go to future guests, I can say, Hey, this is a show. It's on a network. It's been featured in these players. I had Seth on the show. I had James on the show. You know, do you have 45 minutes for a remote interview sometime in the next few months? Like I give people these giant time horizons because I'm going to do the show forever. So like, yeah, if Tim Urban needs to book out four months in advance and reschedule it twice, fine. It's fine. I'm not putting, (laughs) I'm not like holding the next week's episode, hoping that I can publish Tim next week. Like it'll come when it comes and I'll keep filling the pipeline. And that's Mm. just kind of the approach. And you, you build one at a time that way. And you know, the audience is kind of built with it platforms because Jeff's relationships trusted him and the network as much as they trusted me. So they, they helped promote the launch a little bit and every once in a while we'll get featured in some one-off collection. Like we got into the life at home collection on Apple podcasts for a little bit when COVID kind of mm. kicked in. So yeah, you just got to kind of exist long enough to catch some breaks and look legit. Everything kind of comes down to looking legit, you know, like <laughs> right. designers have such an advantage because they can just make stuff look legit. Even if it's mm. just a guy behind a computer who can make a really good looking website and landing page. If the story's good, if it looks like you would expect it to look, it just performs really well. It's like half the battle. Unfortunately, we equate quality with design for better or for worse. And I'm realizing that and I'm using that to my advantage. I just have to hire to do it. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And going back to one other thing you said uh, as well, where you're talking about sort of the, we have to start with C level and then B level and then a, and then a level. And you're sort of like, screw that. I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm, I, I can see it now. Maybe it's a blog post that works for me, but you know, jumping the ladder, because then once you're already at the A level, you have the sets and the James, yeah. like your job is easier. It's a little bit one, you get some credibility, there's some more intrigue, possibly, you know, some, some shares and sort of some kickstarting on their end for what they're sharing. But then getting future guesses, I would have to imagine a little bit easier once you have those right. on the guest list. Cause it's like, oh, if like they, they, everyone just assumes that somebody else did the work of deciding whether this was worth their time or not. And it's like, well, if yeah. these guys did it, like it must be a good bet. And it is, but it could also very easily not be, you know? So it's, yeah, I, I think you, you shoot high, like more begets more in every sense of the word. Like if you have bad clients, that's going to lead to more bad clients. If you have good clients, it's mm-hmm. going to lead to more good clients. 
if you have more users. Actually, this workshop that I'm doing in a couple of weeks on community building. I sent the email. I got a few purchases from it. I put it out on Twitter where I have a stronger following around community. And those people jumped on. I was like, oh, shit, this is great. Look how, look how many people are registered for this. And that became more people. And it became like this FOMO thing. And now I'm going to make a badass workshop because now I have a captive audience of like a hundred really impressive, awesome people. And I'm going to blow their minds. And hopefully that becomes like its own jumping off point for something. I don't know, (laughs) but it's, it's just like everything is a momentum game. And if you can start with a lot of momentum and just keep going, it's, it's, you know, easier. That, that's me. That's the silence is me writing down. Everything's a momentum game because that's just too good for me to even, even pass over while we're recording. I w- want to get back to you. So the guests, Oh, by the way, and I, so Seth does re- respond really, really swiftly. I had, I had pitched him to come on. Everything is marketing as my first guest. Cause I wanted to jump the ladder. He promptly said no, because I had n- sort of, you know, nothing to show for. And so I very understand. And he has this rule. If he doesn't go on a podcast until it has 50 episodes, cause he wants to make sure it has longevity. I completely understand that. So now that's my sort of chip on the shoulder goal to get to 50 episodes that can have Seth on and then I'll jump the ladder a little bit. But that's a great, a great hack that you can, you can leverage that, especially having the success with upside before then. One of the things I wanted to ask you about and and touch on is that we mentioned earlier that, you know, creative elements has crossed 500,000 downloads. I don't know what upside is at at this point, but I would have to assume that it's still a fairly large and successful podcast as well. It's just way more niche. Right, right. Way more niche. Podcast marketing and listenership growth is extremely difficult. It feels like this kind of cryptic code that you have to crack. What have been some of the keys to getting you to the point that you've been able to with creative elements and upside? Almost 100% of my growth has come from the features in podcast listening apps. Really? For sure. Because podcast discovery is broken but the one place it exists is on the discovery pages of podcast listening apps wow okay so how how do you get featured then (laughs) or Uh, how did you get featured i work with jeff at the podglomerate because Mm. he's built relationships and trust with a bunch of great shows for a long time and they don't just like he doesn't just like crack a whip and say do this like he has to pitch ideas and shows and it has to make sense for the editorial teams at these apps with timing and everything they need to trust it's going to be a good show they want to hear it and like because they're putting their neck out on the line mm-hmm. a lot of these apps will have a page that has like instructions for how to pitch yourself to be featured which i would encourage you to do but this is the reason that i worked with jeff because upside to grow that was a grind and at one point we talked to jeff to see like hey would it be interesting for you to bring us on the network? Can we pay you to do growth? And his point was just basically like, listen, it doesn't make sense for me to work with a show that has already launched because it's a big risk for me to work with any show and the way that they do their, their relationships. And he's like, I have a lot more opportunity to help you build an audience from launch because launch is a marketable event. Mm. And so I just filed that away for like eight or nine months. And I don't think I would have done creative elements if Jeff didn't partner with me on it. I think wow. I would have been like, this is going to be really hard. And if he doesn't buy into it, like I, I wanted an unfair advantage for distribution. And I thought that a network could do that. I didn't really have any other network connections or like, I didn't even know who else I would pitch if not Jeff. So I'm glad it worked out. 
But like I knew from day one, like I want to work with somebody else that can help me with distribution because I don't remember what had happened in my life at that time where I just realized that distribution was an unfair advantage for everything. Like, yeah, it's great to make a great product, but if nobody sees it, it doesn't matter. And often like average products with better distribution went out. So I was just on a train of distribution and I was like, I, th- I think this is the way to do it with a podcast. But here's yeah. another, here's another thing besides yeah. podcast listening app features, audio is the only thing that converts to audio. In my opinion, we at upside, we realized that sharing a podcast episode is so hard. And now there are at least tools like PodLink, which I love, but we're like, you know, what is easy to share is articles. So if we get people to come to upside.fm, certainly they'll stumble upon the show and be hooked. And so we did this big effort quarterly publication. It was like a digital magazine. We put a ton of effort into it and we're really proud of that work. We sourced contributors. We wrote original articles. We highlighted industry news for this area of the country. It was all really aligned to the brand. Hmm. Eric, one morning, I was out filming our documentary and Eric took one of the articles from the publication and put it on Hacker News. And it hit number one and it stayed there most of the day. Drove like 30,000 page views to our website. Zero noticeable effect on podcast subscribers. Really? We no longer do that publication. So... The lesson there is audio is the only thing that converts to audio and whether it's a podcast listening mm-hmm. app or whether it's doing uh, a guest appearance on someone else's show, maybe you do a swap, maybe you have a cross promotion where you do a 30 minute bit about somebody else's show on your show and they do the same. The only way to get podcast listeners is by targeting podca- podcast listeners. Wow. That, that's, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, going, going back to everything is fascinating about this conversation. I feel like I, feel, uh, I keep saying that's one of those ticks probably. But uh, it's true. That's just like the theme that's been ringing through my head. Going back to the features, I don't know how much you know or can say about it, but how well curated are those features? Like, is there like a, because what, what, what it could possibly sound like is, well, you have to know a guy and then everyone who knows a guy, you know, gets featured. Oh, yeah. Or is it sort of a, a merit, more merit-based curation where they're sort of searching and looking and they're, you know, they are going through a lot of the, you know, ones that are pitched. It definitely depends on the player, but for the most part, like players that you would want to be featured in that have users and, and listeners, it's it's merit-based. Like having a relationship helps to get yourself into the discussion, but ultimately like they're editorial decisions and it's a reputational right. risk for them to promote a show that's not good or that won't exist in six weeks. And most podcasts won't exist in six weeks. So they are pretty stringent on it. And honestly, I just don't have a lot of great advice here for people who are getting into the game right now. Like I I do think that the, the key is novelty so that you can increase word of mouth, like novelty and a really great product to have something differentiated and really good that people want to share. I think shorter is, is better these days because the biggest battle is getting people to hit play the first time in the first place. And we're more likely to do that at the show is shorter. I do think production matters, but yeah, I think you got to have like a really good reason for why your show is different or it's going to be a hard going. Not everybody can work with a podcast network. I recognize that you don't need to, if you have an existing audience that you can port over, even if it's to a small degree, like that's certainly going to help, but it's, it's hard out here for an indie podcaster starting from zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard game. I'm experiencing it right now. I think it, there are also all sorts of lessons I could already, you know, speak about given 
the short amount of time I've been doing everything as marketing. But I want to I want to begin to wrap up here a little bit. But I want to make sure that I ask about adding a personal touch because you had this tweet and it sort of inspired for me. I think I did something similar from it. But you had talked about how you added this little block at the bottom of your podcast, like the pros page, where it was basically like, hey, proceeds go towards a down payment on our first house. And it's a picture of you uh, and your fiance, wife. Yep, yep fiance. Okay. Where did that come from? And why do you choose to do that? I don't know. I, I didn't see, I didn't like see it anywhere. I think, I think more and more, I'm just realizing that I find success when I lean into being a human person that people can relate to. So like more and more in my entire ecosystem and experience, I'm trying to embed more videos. So like if you go to jklaus.com right now and subscribe to my email list, the thank you page is a video from me. And like, that's a small thing, but I wanted to do that. And I'm, I'm just trying to integrate more things like that, that are like a little bit higher touch and also form the relationship faster. Cause like the fastest way for you to know, like, and trust me is to like sit down and have dinner with me or like have a coffee, you know, that yeah. doesn't scale. That doesn't work. Second fastest thing is a video call. Can't do with that. Everybody. I'm, I'm sorry. But third fastest is like a video. And then Email is probably behind that. Maybe a phone call, but we're not going to do a phone call either. Maybe Clubhouse if I ever get into that game. Podcasting is audio, so audio does better than text, I think, for building a relationship. So I'm just constantly trying to be like more of a human person people can relate to. And hmm. like it it was true. It like I'm not out here just like bankrolling and buying cars or whatever. Like I want you to know that yes, this thing I made can help you, but also you can help me by buying the thing. Like patronage is something I think we're all beginning to appreciate more and more because we're all brands in a sense. And even if we're just like paying patronage by following each other and liking each other's photos, we know what it feels like when somebody appreciates our work. And I want people to know that I appreciate when you appreciate my work and here's what it does. I think that visibility is attractive. I would want to know that. I mean, if I was like, Hey, I'm going to fund this awful organization with your money. I know that's also going to have a <laughs> negative effect, right? So I, I just thought it would be a fun experiment to see like, does this have any effect? And I knew that like, maybe it could have a really positive effect. And I don't know that I have data to say like, this is definitely why I've been selling more courses this year. Probably not. But for the people who it pushes them over the edge and they say like, Hey, I saw this and I'm happy for you. It's like, awesome. I hope you um, enjoy the sign off in my emails where I also talk about like what's going on in Mallory in my life. You know, I think, I think people like that, but it's not, it's not as focused or direct as people who are giving writing advice, you know, like people who follow my work are definitely coming along for the ride of Jay's life and they get a little bit invested in me. And that's not a very compelling sales pitch because why would you care about me if you don't care about me? But right. if I get you in, you just might, and then you might stick around for a while, but it's, it's definitely harder to start the, the top of the funnel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, on that, it's just people like you. And, and if, even if it's that small add a thing that sort of puts someone over, over the edge to, to buy, to refer someone to even just retweet, right? It's, it's some sort of, some sort of social capital that you, that you can, that you can gather. I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file as it were, sort of the, one of the ending segments I love to do just to kind of get an idea of what do people like, what are some, you know, worthy marketing examples, campaigns, templates, scripts, 
things that they that they that they have. Do you, is there anything that is top of mind, or that do you have a favorite that would be useful for people listening? Yes. Let me let me start with like the cold email template that I think works really well for getting guests or getting somebody to agree to do something. There are a couple of rules that I live by that I think are really important. Remember your subject line is like the most important thing because if I don't open the email, nothing matters. So it needs to be clear and it probably needs to be short enough that it fits on a mobile screen. So for creative elements, I will literally put interview request in brackets in the front of the, the subject line. And then I'll probably follow that, that up with like, can we talk about your creative career? I think that plays one it's direct. People know what this is going to be. So it primes them for that ask Two, I think it plays a little bit to vanity because like, I want to talk about my stuff. Then in the email, it needs to be, I have like a rule of one scroll. You only get one scroll of my thumb on a mobile phone. And that's as much as I'm willing to consume in a cold email. So I start, I start with like a very personalized, direct reason why I'm reaching out. I just booked Cole Kushner, the host of Dissect, like one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, New wow. season right now, season eight, Dissecting Yeezus by Kanye. I sent him an email and I said, hey, Cole, I just listened to episode one of season eight. Season two, Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is like my favorite creative project of all time. I am stoked to potentially have you on the show. Then I give a real quick what Creative Elements is. Creative Elements is a podcast talking to creators about how they make a living from their art and creativity. I would love to tell your story. It's a high production narrative interview podcast on the Podglomerate Network that's been featured on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, CastBox. I've interviewed guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Vanessa Van Edwards and Tim Urban. Then in bold, actually above that, I say the pitch in bold. Then in bold, I say, would you be open for a 45 minute remote interview of the show? If so, I will send you a scheduling link. No pressure, no expectation. I know you're busy. I would love to talk sometime in the coming months. Breaking all that down. Like there's the obvious of it's direct. You know what the show is about. I link to the show when I say the name and it goes to Apple podcasts where they can see my guest list. They can see that I have Mm. 150 plus five-star reviews. So it's like social proof, social proof heuristic. I like to say narrative interview style because it shows that I'm putting investment into the show's production. I also like to obviously tag some of the guests that are on there in case they don't click through. And then the podcast players it's been featured on is like kind of a cherry on top too. But the final thing that most people don't do when they're making an ask in a cold email, I give them a big time horizon. Like, Mm. do you have 45 minutes in the next several months? Because these are busy people. (laughs) And like, I can probably find 45 minutes in the next couple of months. But the worst thing you can do, yeah. The worst thing you can do is get someone excited like, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll do this. And then it ends with, do you have time this week to talk? Or even next week? Nobody has time this week. If I have time this week, I'm protecting that with my life. I can't believe I have time this week. Please let me keep it. Next week too. So you got to like push it out far enough that it feels like, of course I can find time in the next couple of months. And I don't think enough people do that. And then I always end with like, no pressure, no expectation. Thanks for the consideration because they're doing you a favor by just reading the email. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That, that's an amazing one. I'm going to have to write that one verbatim and have that as one of the, the resources in the show notes. Was there, was there another one? Is it a follow-up email? Yeah. When I follow up with the guests, you know, the the marketing strategy of following up a get with a guest is you want them to share the show because they may have an audience of their own. So I keep that short as well and say, Hey Corey, just want to let you know, or I say, Hey Corey, I hope you've been well since last time we talked. Just want to let you know that your episode of creative elements is now live and it's been sent out to thousands of subscribers already saying like 
thousands of people are seeing this, so you don't have to do mm. me a favor. I'm already doing you a favor. And then I say like, I'll either say I'm sharing on social shortly so they know to look out for it because I'm going to tag them and I want them to see it, or I'll share it and link to the social. Then I'll say here are a couple links, Apple Podcasts, specific uh, link to that, Spotify, specific link to that, episode specific webpage because I make that. I attach their artwork, and if I'm really on my game, I make a couple of audiograms as well in a folder. I say I've attached the artwork, I've attached the audiograms, zero expectation to share this, though it is appreciated. I really enjoyed how this came out. I hope you have a chance to give it a listen and see what you think. Also amazing. What do do you have a a gauge for like how well that works or like how many people sort of take you up on that offer to share to make use of the email? Probably less than 50%. They'll usually like, they might retweet what I did, but a lot of people I talk to do a ton of interviews. So honestly, I don't even know that all of them listen to it. And sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that sucks because it would like be very, impactful you know you're talking about like it's free to give a like on this it's free to give a retweet on this it costs so little to share some of this right and so i try I to do that myself when i guest on shows but i recognize i do a lot of them and so i don't have any expectation nobody owes me anything they gave me their time that is great but i hope they listen to it and i hope they like it and i hope it's an experience where they think like that one was different and that's why i'm going to share this one and not the others yeah i maybe it's a maybe it's just my own kind of bias and perspective but I feel like the, the whole, you know, you have to get guests on in order to grow your show because then they'll share with their audience is a little bit of a trope at this point because yeah, it's not. maybe that was true several years ago, but now everyone gets interviewed. It's, it's very like, it's not very novel to share that you're on a podcast anymore. Yeah. And a lot of the incentives to share are sort of gone and, and I get it. I don't, I don't share every single one that I do. I'd l- I at least try to give it a retweet or I'll, you know, share something, but there's also, it's harder. And, but like I said, it's, it's that same kind of no, no message or no like is, is a message yep. <laughs> is, is a not like, right. And so sometimes it hurts, but that's an amazing template. I feel like even, you know, I don't know, 40% sort of hit rate, if you will, is would be, totally. still be a smashing success. Totally. Any of them is a plus, even yeah. if it trickles into, you know, 15 new followers on Instagram. Awesome. I hope they stick around for the ride and like listen to the show more cool. But you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this as like, I want to create a great piece of work that is part of my body of work that I'm proud of. And I'm going to do that whether you share it or not. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's a great perspective to have last question for you. And then I'll let you go. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? It means that everything is an opportunity to spread a message. Literally everything we do, like spread some sort of message, you know, like we were saying, even no message is a message. Marketing to me is, is this helping to potentially move someone towards an outcome? And every action you take can be that. Even if it's just creating your own expect or creating an expectation of who you are in their mind, like you yourself have a brand, whether you like it or not, every interaction someone has with you is kind of adding to the best fit line of what I expect Corey to be. And so everything I do is marketing. Hmm. I love it. Jay, thanks so much. It's been a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you coming on and sharing so long with me. There's so many valuable insights and uh, just can't say enough. Thank you, dude. Appreciate you. Thanks for coming on creative elements. I hope people listen to the show. Absolutely. Going to link to that as well. We'll find it all in the show notes and lots of the mentions and uh, thanks again. Thanks again to Jay for coming on the show. 
Make sure to check out his podcasts, Creative Elements and Upside. You should also check out his courses, which I'll link to in the show notes. If you can spare a quick second, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today and let him know what you learned as well. To wrap up here, here are a few of my takeaways. Community building is culture building. Model the behavior you want to see in your community, then reward those who exhibit that behavior with public and private praise. It's really as simple as that, but it's simple and not easy. I also found it interesting that Jay got inspiration from Traba Mentors, Without Fail, Tropical MBA, and a few other sources. This goes to show that the best inspiration comes from unexpected places. One of the core themes of Swipe Files is something that, if you notice, you'll kind of start to see everywhere. And finally, distribution truly is an unfair advantage for everything. Yes, you need a fantastic product that goes without saying, but distribution is what turns that fantastic product into a runaway success. Creative Elements getting featured in the podcast players is a huge advantage that's allowed them to push Creative Elements up the charts as a top 1% podcast in the world. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.